Hello, and welcome to Plotris. This is Meg. This is Lane. And today we're reviewing Fairy R by Lois McMaster Bajold. This was published in 1991 and is the sequel to Shards of Honor. So you may remember we featured this in September or October as one of our romance-adjacent books. And those are books that we think have some kind of connection. So they're not explicitly romance novels, but the romance in them is such a significant part that we think that they are romance-adjacent. And the first book is the origin story of both them and their love story. And this book has been described as what happens after the happy ending. Yes, it was described as that by Bujold herself. I will also say that it was around this time. So this is, in the series, this is like the second book, because the first book is Shards of Honor, and then comes Barry R. And literally, Barry R starts the day after Shards of Honor leaves off. Mm-hmm. So like it's it's literally a sequel. It starts right away. But Barriar was written um, quite a few books after this one. So there are quite a few books that come in between Shards of Honor and Barriar that were published in publication order, not in. Publication in order. Yeah, right. Um, so this is actually this is kind of interesting, personally interesting for me and Lane, because um, this series is one of my favorites. And uh, the Amelia Peabody series is one of Lane's favorites. And both of these series the internal chronology is different than the published chronology. The first third of Barriar was written as part of Shards of Honor, and apparently her editor said, you know what, let's end it here instead. Oh, that's really interesting. Isn't that super interesting? And she's she's talked, she actually is a really great follow on Goodreads. She talks a lot about her writing process. So um, the first third would mean like up through the coronation? Yeah. Just about. Um, So and she she talks about how she really appreciates that editor helping her out because she was like she was right when I looked back on it. I was like, oh, yes, I introduced a new character, um, Drushnikovi and um, the princess. Well, and Errol's dad, really. Peter becomes a much bigger character. Yes. So she was like, my editor was really helpful with me saying, look, this is like this looks really interesting, but it's not really part of this book. Mm -hmm. So. Which can show you what a good editor can do. Well, and I do believe now, just for anybody out looking for the text, um, Shards of Honor and Barry are, are published as a joint novel now called Cordelia's Honor. So if yes. you see that on a bookshelf, you're getting both Shards of Honor and Barry are. Yeah. And um, this is the book that I buy whenever I see it in a used bookstore. I just buy it automatically, um, Cordelia's Honor, and I give it to everyone. I might have copies from Meg it wouldn't surprise me and you know doesn't bother me at all I might all right so let's get to the book jacket Cordelia Warkosigan's plans for a peaceful married life after all the bloodshed and trials recounted in Shards of Honor are shattered when a poison gas attack intended for her husband Errol leaves her ill and her unborn child damaged Resisting enormous pressure to abort her son, Cordelia struggles to keep her unborn child, transferred to a uterine replicator, alive while thwarting plans by a ruthless opponent to murder the young emperor and assume absolute power over all of Barriar. Once again, Cordelia displays her courage and her remarkable combat and leadership skills. 
Winner of the Hugo Award for Best Novel. So, okay. yes, this, this book this is, did win the Hugo Award for Best Novel in 1992. Um, this is such it was a published bad jacket. in 1992. Yeah. Okay, so, first of all, the conflict in this book is not just that, like, Errol has a target on his back. If I were to write a summary of this book, I would, like, remind the reader that Cordelia is Baton, but has come to Barriar for Errol, so all of these customs are foreign to her. Mm-hmm. I would tell the reader that she came to Barriar to marry Errol, a retired soldier, and was unprepared for him then to immediately be appointed regent for a boy emperor. Which happened at the end of the, the first novel, which happened at right, the very like, end of the first novel. This so far is reminders. Mm-hmm. So, like, that would be my first paragraph. And then my second paragraph would basically be some spoiler-free nonsense about but the emperor's death created political discord. Not only is there a target on Errol's back, but a civil war is brewing as well as an external invasion. Like, this is really specific about one incident that I don't think is thematically super representative. Yeah, and it, uh, I'm going to be completely honest, if I knew nothing about this book and I read that summary, I'd be like, oh, this is an abortion metaphor? I don't want to yeah. read this book. I don't really think it is. I don't think it is either, because if it were, yeah, I, think, I wouldn't be all about this book. I think, too, I read it more as a criticism of science being not particularly concerned with advancing women's issues mm-hmm. from a medical standpoint than as a discussion about like unborn life. Yes. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, and it's about how uh, to me, what this book is about is about how the political is personal. So it's that feminist catchword, catchphrase, right? Because in Cordelia's life, that's what it is. You know, everything that she can't separate her po- her political life with Errol from her personal life with Errol. Like, it just cannot be separated. Right. So it's and her. Like that, yeah. her she, she's being forced to recognize how much of her identity is wrapped up in the ethics, morals, and politics of Beta Colony. And having to hold the belief she has while on this planet with entirely distant, distinct societies and customs mm-hmm. and politics. Like, I, I think she's very much a fish out of water and that's a real benefit to the reader. Yes. But I think that really doubles down on that. The political is personal because there are things that the barrier and political class is concerned with that she would have never thought was a political issue. Because mm-hmm. it never would have been in her home country, planet, country, colony. Exactly. Yep. So, Lane, are there any romance tropes in this book? I thought there were a lot. Uh-huh. So, um, one of my favorites is at the big inaugural ball that they have to go to that also serves as Cordelia's, like, big introduction to society. Um, Errol invites her to dance and she's like, Oh my God, I can't dance. So he's like, let's go out on the balcony and I will teach you to dance. (laughs) Which, okay. First of all, trope. And then also when they go out there, they overhear one of the B couples in the text already having a romantic interlude in the bushes. So it's like, yes, 
balls are when the sexy time in the garden happens. Yes. Um, there's also prior to that a moment where Cordelia overhears a bunch of people talking about her because they don't know who she is yet by face, mm-hmm. which very romance novel-y. Um, and then there's also, she has a new high society BFF who teaches um, her the fashion ropes. So uh, there are several like grand ballroom et- entrances in new dresses, which by the way, everything about the fashion in these books is so late eighties, early nineties, like house dresses with elegant embroidered vests. <laughs> yes. Like this is so nice. Well, it's like out of date. It, well, it is, but it's also supposed to be, um, so very are if you haven't read it or you haven't um, listened to our episode on Charles of Honor, Barriar was colonized by um, several distinct cultural groups. And one of those cultural groups was Russia. And um, apparently that was one of the dominant cultural groups. Uh, and so actually in, in throughout the text, they have a lot of like embroidered boleros and vests. And I think it's supposed to be like callbacks to Russian culture as well. I think it is, but that was also pretty prevalent. I mean, as a little girl in the nineties, I was put in a lot of like embroidered vests. Yes. I'm just saying that I think, I think that she was, if yes, she was, she was influenced by eighties and nineties fashion, but I think she also was trying to make it cultural as well. (laughs) Sure. Um, There is a life threatening situation where a life altering decision is made with only one romantic partner having all the facts. Yes. Which, uh, tell me that's not a romance trope. I mean, the situation here is clearly different. Most romance novels set in Regency England don't have poison gas attacks. True. This is true. But still the trope is there. Um, and then she's got a manipulative father-in-law, Harold's dad has a lot of political clout and while he's largely accepted Cordelia they do regularly come into conflict he's the worst by the way he's really bad Piotr is like terrible um and a bunch of the people in society well not to her face she overhears a bunch of people in society kind of bad mouthing Errol and then one society douchebag actually has the audacity to come up to her and try to like throw Errol's romantic past in her face Yes, because again, if you remember from Shards of Honor, from our episode, or if you've read it, um, Errol is is bisexual. Right, and he also has an ex-wife. Well, he has a dead wife. Okay, yeah, a dead wife. So <laughs> he he has a. I, I meant to say he had a first wife. He had a, he had a he used to be married. Yes, he is a widower. And the the person he took up with after his wife's death was a really horrible, evil man. But also, it was believed in society that he potentially had a hand in offing his wife. Yes. So there's a lot going on there for people to try to throw in Cordelia's face. But Errol already knows she knows all of it. So yeah, what also, evil douchebag dude can't ruin her marriage. Yes. Also, this is like one of the things that Lane and I love. Like if you want to give us a romance that we will love, it's one where the both parties in their relationship are honest with you with each other, honest and open, which somehow manages to avoid like a lot of conflict later. Crazy idea, right? Anyway, Errol and Cordelia are like totally honest with each other all the time. So even when they disagree, it's very strange. Yeah, it's so, so weird. But that's kind of those were the high points I noticed. Did you notice any other romance tropes? 
Um, well, besides the ones you mentioned, I just thought I'd throw out. So you have heard that her last name, her husband's last name is Vorkos again. Well, on this planet, if you are one of the nobles, if you're a noble family, your name starts with Vor. So we have quite a few. There's a Vor Patrol, Vor Darian, Vor Kosigan, Vor Rutyer, Vor Bara, right? So um, they call them High Vor, which of course is like the Hotan, right? The 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 Omond, or however you yep. pronounce it. But anyway, yeah. So it's it's just I just love it with like, oh well, those are High Vor manners. <laughs> oh, they're very High Vor family, you know, just just like love it. Um, but that also means that there are a lot of politics at the balls as well. So a lot of that Probably happens at the balls. more than in a usual romance novel. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But that's, that's basically it, other than what you already mentioned. Conflict in this book is not, like, are they going to end up together? Because they have already ended up together. But it's more the negotiation of how is their relationship going to play out now? Because the fact that he is the regent was not what either of them had, had thought when they got married. And there's the added factor of, in Shards of Honor, she fled her home colony as a fugitive. Yeah, she can't go back. with him, so she can't go back. Exactly. So, like, not only are the terms of their relationship not what either of them were anticipating, but she, she's stuck with him. Like, she can't be alone in this society that she doesn't recognize or understand, where she's not really allowed to have an occupation. Mm-hmm. Like, she she threw all of her eggs in this basket. Yep. Yes. And she doesn't, like, come to regret it. I don't, like, this is not a marriage in crisis book. No. No, it's not. But, but it's definitely a difficult situation to navigate for both of them. Yes. Well, and, you know, I think part of the reason we write and read science fiction is to look at our own cultural norms and our own society and see where things could be changed. So I, I, honestly, I think all science fiction is in some way, shape or form. I don't want to say an allegory, but there are um, contrasts and, and things to note between um, like highlights between our society and, and others. So I, I think they're all societal critiques in some way. Right, like um, reflections of different societal elements and norms, not right. so much an allegory. Right. And so here I think it's really, well, what is marriage? So even if you go into it saying, okay, this is going to be a marriage of equals, we respect each other, we think it's great, how is society going to fuck that up for you, basically? Yeah, and especially when when they got married, they assumed they were both retired. Mm-hmm. And clearly now that's not the case. So. Yeah. And I mean, she knew, she knew. And part of the reason she fell in love with him. And actually they talk about it in this book. One of the lines I love so much. is, Oh yeah. So it's like two thirds of the way through the book. And she's thinking about how, you know, like maybe I should, she's thinking maybe it would be easier to run away from this marriage basically. Um, and she says, she says, she thinks to herself, you should have, she thinks to herself, you should have fallen in love with a happy man if you wanted happiness. But no, you had to fall for the breathtaking beauty of pain. Yeah. But yeah, every, every time I read this book, that line gets me every time. Yeah. It's a lot. And it's, it's a little bit angst, but it's oh. like. 
perfectly done angst. It's it's totally angst, but it's also it's also Cordelia like acknowledging the angst. Like she's acknowledging it to herself. Like, yeah, I could have picked. Like, let's think about this relationship. She met this guy in a war zone, you know, <laughs> flees him as an escaping prisoner of war. Then meets up again. She's been taken prisoner of war by someone else. He breaks her out of jail. Then she leaves her. She flees her. Like, this is like the epitome of angst, that their entire relationship. But I would say most of the time the book doesn't relish in the maudlin. Yes. That's and that one line is an example of like a little bit of maudlin sentiment. It does, but it's so... It's like the only time Cordelia falls into it because most of the time, and I love Cordelia. She's one of my favorite characters in all of literature. Mm -hmm. Um, She's so smart. She takes action. She knows what she wants. She admits her mistakes, right? Mm -hmm. And this is the one moment where she acknowledges, yeah, like I definitely made this a little hard on myself here. So, as we've mentioned, for Cordelia, Barriar is, like, a huge culture shift. Oh, yeah. And, I mean, really, when you look at Barriar's politics, they're pretty similar to, like, today's, like, maybe the 1980s, right? They're not all that different from, like, modern. Well, they are, in the sense that, you know, Barriar is still an aristocracy. Barrier is a new, like a, yeah, throwback aristocracy. It's true. And whereas Beta Colony was an overly scientific democracy, I think we talked about this in the first book, like the beauty of this book is that all of the proto-human or neo-human societies have elements that we'd recognize today. And so I do think while a lot of the meat consumption, natural birth, interpersonal politicking is pretty recognizable. It does in a lot of ways also throw back to like steampunk 1900s. A like, little bit. Yeah. Tech, I, but still definitively a ruling class by virtue of birth. Right. And so I think it's, it's interesting because Barriar is one of those societies where they were thrown back. Um, they had to subsist on like what they could make by hand. And then all of a sudden they were rediscovered and they got all this new technology like thrown at them. Mm-hmm. So their society is in flux right now. They are, they evolved to deal with this one world. And now they're like, oh, we actually have all the firepower of the universe at our fingers. How are we gonna, what are we gonna do with it? So it's partly that. One of the things that I think is really cool about this book is how there are a lot of elements of beta colony where, um, Cordelia comes from that we identify with, but I think we readers are more familiar with barrier in society than she is. Yes, that's definitely true. Does that make sense? So like she's trying to deal with these things that we're like, well, yeah, duh, you know, like about virginity or, you know, (laughs) the construction of virginity, things like that. Well, I was going to say more like the way certain topics, particularly relating to sex, are only acceptable in certain social situations. Yes. This is one of the funniest scenes in the book. So funny. Oh my gosh. Yeah. But, but yes. Um, So I think that's, I think that's one of the really great things about this book too, is that yes, Cordelia is a fish out of water. She's dealing with beta society. We are learning about, excuse me. She's new to, 
fairy are in society. So she's learning how to deal with it. But then we're learning how to deal with it through her eyes. And we can recognize things that maybe she can't. And again, we've talked about how we love authors who do this. Yes, who are capable of having a book in limited perspective that still provides the reader with additional insight without making an omnipotent character. Yes. So it's great. Um, another thing I think Bujol does really well is write villains. So her villains are, I think, fully realized characters. There's not like a bad guy who's just a bad guy, right? Like Piotr, you understand his motivations. You know where he's coming from. You understand why he has so many issues with Cordelia and Errol's marriage. Part of the reason Varatyar is more complicated is I viewed his character more as a like commentary on what the military can do to young men and like mm -hmm. violence-based societies. Whereas I don't feel like Vordarian had much personal motivation expressed to the reader, yes. nor was it like a commentary on particular foibles of society beyond power corrupts. Yes. But then there's also the young man who launches the poison gas attack. Yeah. Who, again, you'd be like, oh, that guy's just evil. But, again, he has a backstory. He has a reason. No, he really definitely evil. was more complicated. So that's it's just one thing that I think she does a really good job with in general. Yeah. Definitely. I mean, just characters in general. Characterization for her. So there is a B romance in this book between yeah. one of the former Queen's guard who is now in Cordelia's service named Drew. Yeah. Uh -huh. And Kudelka, who was the um, individual who took a nerve disruptor to the whole body in shards of honor, who is now on Errol's personal staff. Yeah. It's, it, it, this is something we, we actually have talked about actually in romance novels about how we love the, like the staff like the maid and the footman getting together. Prisoner of Zelda! Right? So here we go here. We've got Koo and Drew. And also they've got this, these cute little rhyming names. And their first names are atrocious, which it's not a romance trope. It's just a trope in general. But I love it when you finally get the reveal of the first name of characters only know by their last name. And their first names are horrific. <laughs> and they're like, uh, and she's like, yes, my last name is Rushnikovi. Now I'm married. My last name is Kudelka. You're still going to call me Drew for the rest of my life. Yeah. Because like, you're not, not going to call me Ludmilla. Basically, yeah. But um, one of the things that they do in uh, in this book, or what Bujol does, uh, again, is she talks about barrier and culture. And one of the things they have, which she took from Russian culture, are the, the babas. And they're basically like matchmakers or go-betweens between yentas. one family and the other. Like yentas, yeah. If you're Jewish, I guess. <laughs> so... I always think of Fiddler on the Roof. Yeah. So Russian Jewish. So she plays Baba for Ku and Drew because they have, they've, they've been circling around each other. And of course she has issues understanding what their issues are because she's like, I don't understand why you guys are, are just don't come out and talk to each other like normal people. <laughs> but of course for them, normal people on Beta Colony would be ridiculously tactless and very hard. Right. But she manages to get them together in the end. And it's like it's such a funny scene. I love this scene. I love where it happens. It like happens <laughs> while Alice is like, has just given um, birth and is like, yeah. 
unconscious in bed with the baby right there. It, I, mean, I, do, it's great. I do also like that Drew and Koo's issues have not been resolved by this conversation. Yeah. What Cordelia is able to do is contextualize for them, like, basically, we're living in a war. You only have so much time. Like, I, I am not interested in listening to you guys pine to me but not talk to each other. I'm eliminating the middleman. And, like, they realize they want to work through their issues together, but they both still have a lot of issues. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I also love how Drew thinks that she and she thinks that Cordelia and Errol have this perfect relationship. And Cordelia points out, well, our relationship is not perfect. Like, I don't know why you think that. Like, look at what we're doing right now. And right, like, we're like, on the run on a mission he expressly forbid me from undertaking. Yep. He's pissed right now. Yeah, he's like not happy with me right now. <laughs> You know, can you imagine what he's doing right now? And she's like, oh, I see. I also think during, so basically Drew, Koo, Bothari, and Cordelia end up on like a heist mission, for lack of a better word. I love but it. in the middle of like an active war zone. And I think what Bujol does so well is showing courage while also being realistically afraid mm-hmm. and showing how that can play on someone's nerves. Mm-hmm. Like Cordelia is a very effective leader through yes. all of these scenes and these moments where she's separated from Errol throughout the book, but it does start to take a whole toll on her mental health. Oh yeah. And the book really does a good job of showing her slowly coming apart at the seams to the point that, like, Batons are usually a very peaceful people. And the end of the book is her just ordering an execution. But do we want to spoil this? Because it's so good. It's so, like, if when I'm feeling down, I will sometimes cue, because I have this book on audio and reading. Sometimes I'll just cue it up and just listen to this five minutes of her shopping trip to Fort Barcelona. Like, in later books in the series... Um, I, I'm going to spoil just a tiny bit for later books in the series. I love it because, um, like they'll talk about how, you know, like people always respected Errol and then he married this person from beta colony and they're like, well, that's kind of weird. And then after this, they're like, Oh, we get it now. Well, that sort of starts to happen in this book. And I love the end where Delia's reflecting on the women she's met on beta colony and the sacrifices they've made and what they've done. And she's like, I have this one, like, ugly moment in the middle of conflict Mm -hmm. that I'm not even sure how I feel about. Mm -hmm. But now I'm a hero when I watched Alice Verrusher have a vaginal birth and that almost broke me inside. And it was like this real moment of, like, what is celebrated in society. And I think it's also contextually really relevant right now. Well, and specifically things that are feminized. Why are those the things that have less valor? Or less. Well, I don't. I, what is the word? It's not whatever. Less privileged, or not as privileged as the masculine things that happen. More worth. There you go. That would be the word. Yeah. So. Yeah. No, it's just it's super interesting to have Cordelia's take on it, especially because it's equal parts a really valid point that makes you think about like it's why are especially violent pursuits yes so glorified yes. or things that implicitly involve 
forceful power yeah. celebrated while other difficult tasks are not. But at the same time, it's also Cordelia putting herself down to a degree. Cause she- there are other parts later because, well, and it makes, when I reread this book, it makes me think because, you know, in later books, she's always sort of the power behind the throne. And did this book too, There, when they say that, okay, you guys are going to raise Gregor. She's like, do they realize that women like raise children? I am going to be raising the next emperor of Beriar. Yeah, and, she's and explicitly, like, they tell her she's in charge of his education. Yeah, and she's like, and she's well, like, do you what realize do you think what I'm going to do? And Errol was like, they do not, but, like, I know, and let's do it. Yeah. So it's, I mean, it's just really interesting because it's true. Like, sometimes I read the other books, and I'm like, oh, I wish Cordelia had more of an active role, blah, blah, blah. And then I think to myself, why are you thinking that, you know? Well, and it's also interesting, the one way that I can tell this book is setting up a wider series is it's very clear with all the children being born Yeah. that, like, this was sort of setting up the next generation. Because mm-hmm. you've got Cordelia and Errol raising the emperor. You have them having their own child. Bothari has a little girl. Mm-hmm. Um, Vorkosigan's only living relative has a son. Mm-hmm. And they're all kind of born in this five-year period. And you can tell that these are all the characters who are going to show up in oh, some yeah. I mean, the whole, oh my God, Ivan, you're going to love Ivan in later books. Like you're going to love him so much. I love Ivan. Um, but there's this part in the next book where um, they do, do this thing with Ivan and they say, oh, ever since Ivan's father had died, Errol had been like his surrogate father or something like that. And, and Cordelia are like raising so many yeah. children. <laughs> but so like, obviously this was like retcon though, because, um, you know, in, in Barryard, he died before he was even born. So it wasn't like ever since his father died. I mean, like, yes, it's technically right. true. And someone like, someone like asked her about that. And she was like, this is what we call, what we technically call in the writing world, having a better idea. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just like, I just, I just fucking love her. She's just like, yeah, I, like, I don't give two shits that your stupid continuity isn't followed. Like this was better. So I'll suck on it. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Okay, so trigger warnings. So there is this line that I've heard people pick on. Um, I'll I'll go ahead and say it. So we've already talked about how um, Errol is bisexual. And then Lane was talking about how there's this political enemy at the ball who who basically goes up to her and says, yeah, I hope you know he had affairs with men and women. And Cordelia says, yeah, he was bisexual. Now he's monogamous. So I've heard some people like really dislike that. And I, I do understand how they could dislike it. Right. Because I, I think it's contextual, right? Like yes. on the one hand, I think there is a tendency in our society now for bisexual erasure. Yes. Um, and obviously choosing to be exclusively with one person does not negate that part of your identity. In this case, with this individual attempting to basically force Cordelia to cause a scene with her husband and cause marital yes. strife. I understand that by saying he was bisexual, now he's monogamous, is her basically saying, yes, he has told me all about his past. I'm currently his wife. Right. So to me, I don't think it's about erasing the fact that he's attracted to men. Well, and also, I don't see it as a dichotomy. I I think she's setting it up as a dichotomy, but to be funny. So I find it like, like subversive, subversively funny. Yes. Uh, right. That she's like, yeah, he's bisexual. But guess what? He's he's with me now. So what's the issue? 
Right. If it was somebody, I, I don't know if this was Cordelia's way of like denying any part of Errol, I think that would be problematic. It's not. It's not right. her being dismissive of his bisexuality. Exactly. It's her being dismissive of this douchebag trying to like throw a wrench in her marriage for no reason. Exactly. So, so personally, I think it's kind of funny. I don't think it's very offensive. On the other hand, I am not bi. I'm not queer. So, you know. Yeah, I, I can see why out of context, it's not a great line. Yeah. In context, it didn't offend me. Yeah. Uh, anything else? I mean, lots of discussions of rape and prostitution. Yeah, there there are a lot, yeah. Um, Which, like we said in the first book, this is par for the course. Lots of discussion of social stratification, lots of discussion of behavior during wartime, none of it sugar-coated. Yeah, yeah. I don't and, find any of it to be offensively handled, and none of it's really dwelt upon in this book either. But it's there. Yeah, it's it's there. I will mention that there is a brief. So one of the characters in this book, his name is Bothari. Uh, he's a, an extremely complex character that I don't think you as a reader are ever supposed to know how to feel about. Honestly, because he's done some really awful things in the past. At the same time, he's also one of Cordelia's greatest defenders. And he's also... Book. Like a lab rat. Like he's been experimented on to the degree that you don't know what's him versus what's the stuff he was forced to do. Right. And he doesn't, it's not just like PTSD. Like he's he's like has some severe mental illness that that on Barriard they're not equipped to handle. Well, and it seems like to a degree that the military intentionally caused. Yeah, exactly. So Um, lots of, lots of complexity with him. Yes. Uh, and one of the things that he does is he delivers a baby in the book, which is, you know, it, it also precipitates one of these discussions about what, what is prostitution, what does that mean, um, where was he raised, just a lot of, a lot of things. I mean, I just thought I'd mention it. Yeah, nothing, nothing about that offended me. I actually thought it was meant to be played for laughs, like this big, violent, hired assassin, basically, like... Cordelia and he even joke that he's her dog like he's the one who assassinates people on her command he's the physical embodiment of the worst thing she could do mm-hmm. and yet they adore one another mm-hmm. and he just drops oh yeah my mom was a midwife I've done this <laughs> my mom was a midwife in the brothel where I was raised right and yeah. uh, she took me along sometimes so yeah. uh he was the only he's the only one in their entire party who has any practice any um i don't even i don't even it's not even hands-on experience any any experience at all well right because beta colony largely either you have a uterine replicator taking the place of like a mother's body during pregnancy if you choose to have to carry a baby to turn yourself the medical advances are so extreme that it is not the same experience on Beta Colony. Yeah. And for Drew and Koo, like, information about sex and reproduction is so repressed. Yes. On Barrier that they both have no idea what's going on. Yeah. Um, so then, so let's talk a little bit about, this was brought up in the book jacket, um, but about how the, the focus of this book is the fact that um, 
Cordelia is, I mean, the first sentence, the first paragraph in this book is about how Cordelia is pregnant on Barriar. Uh, and basically everything in the book that happens to her, um, it doesn't happen to her, it happens to her unborn child. Mm-hmm. Right. So everything that threatens Cordelia ultimately threatens Miles. Like they start calling him Miles halfway through the book as well. Like he gets a name. He's not a character, but he is the driving force between what he's the driving force of what Cordelia wants to do, which is to save him. So he gets taken hostage in his uterine replicator. She's got to save him. Um, right. So for the a, first five months of gestation, Miles is inside Cordelia, mm-hmm. as we know on Earth. An event happens as described in the summary in the book jacket. He is extracted from her and put in basically an external womb. So he is in utero for the entirety of the book. The first half of the book in utero means in Cordelia. The second half of the book in utero means in a uterine replicator in a science lab at a hospital. Right. Yep. Um, And then, and then all these people are taken hostage actually by the, the pretender they call him. And um, Miles is, is one of the, the people that's taken hostage. So they, they take the, the replicator hostage. He's one of the hostages. He's one of the hostages. Um, and um, to add to that, because they don't know, they don't know if he's safe viable. or not, if he's viable, if he's going to be, you know, a, a living child with, with um, you know, because of the... Or bones, functional limbs, bones, brains, like they don't know what he's going to be, what he's going to be like when he's born. Her father-in-law is really pressuring her just to abort. Mm-hmm. And she has stood up to him and says, no, like this is, this is, I want this child. I could definitely see somebody. And in fact, I've lent this book to friends who say, well, they didn't see it as being like a feminist book at all, because the whole book is about how she wants to be a mother. And then she goes to save her unborn child. Right. Okay. So not that it's like anti-feminist, but that it's not like a feminist book because it's all about how she wants to be a mother, basically. So if you're child free by choice, I guess I could understand that this book might not have a plot that you super identify with. I mean, I'm child free by choice and I had no problem relating to this plot. Yeah. I I mean, I'm just, I'm just throwing it out there. Basically to me, Cordelia has fallen in love, kind of didn't expect to, has the opportunity to have children with Errol, wants to, and is also from a society that regulates not just childbirth from a scientific standpoint, but even like, the number of kids you can have. And so she really views one of the only benefits of Barriar to be like unlicensed parenthood. Yeah. And part of what happens with the incident that damages Miles in utero is it also likely prevents them from having any more children. Naturally, yeah. Which also is an issue on on Barriar because they're just not as advanced technologically as the rest of the the galaxy. Right. And so I think Miles becomes symbolic for her of not just the only fucking thing she was looking forward to on this planet and now it's her only opportunity to have it, mm-hmm. but also of like everything she left behind. Like this one, the only thing Baton or Escobaran, or from the rest of the galaxy on this planet, it feels like, other than Cordelia, are these 17 external wombs. Mm-hmm. 
And she even says, like, even if Miles doesn't make it, even if, like, this did totally screw him up, even if, like, if all this does is set a trend where doctors are looking at this technology, I will have done something for the Batons. Mm-hmm. I yeah. mean, for the very RNs. And so yeah. I think... I didn't necessarily view her like desire for motherhood and her fixation on Miles' well-being as feminist or anti-feminist. I thought it was just like, okay, cool. So we've got a character who found Mm -hmm. a partner and that for her inherently meant she wanted to be a mother. Cool. What I view as feminist in this text is Cordelia's mouthiness Mm -hmm. (laughs) and continued assistance, insistence on being allowed to be at the table and then yes. her acts of incredible bravery and competence when she's asked to perform either by others or by herself. Like, yes. to me, the feminism in this book is Cordelia's unapologetic belief in her own capability and her living that way. Yeah. I don't no, think I the agree. fact that Miles is her motivating factor is either feminist or anti-feminist. And I certainly don't think this book is anti-abortion. I think what this book is making an argument for against in the case of miles is making an argument without scientific merit yes yes like cordelia is saying cool so my understanding of medicine from based on where i'm from is we take the kid out of me put it in a replicator and there is a strong chance of viability and the only reason that the barry irons want to prevent that is one their own really backwards ideas about ableism mm-hmm. and they're like complete backwardsness when it comes to scientific development. Yes. It's not like a, it's not a, there is no conversation about what is life in this book. No, no, not at all. And Um, in fact, I think in the first book, like abortion sort of not a big deal, if I recall correctly. No. And in fact, in this, honestly, in this book, if, if Errol had said, yeah, I mean, it really stinks. We'll have to get an abortion now, but then we'll just try again later. He, she would have been like, okay, but instead, he was like, yeah, you know, we'll have to have my and, testicles are fried. You know, maybe we can maybe have a baby later if we're lucky. Well, she even says, what do you mean? Like beta colony, all they need is like one of our toenails and some hair and they can make a baby. And he's like, yeah, we'd have to leave Perry. <laughs> yeah, he's like, yeah, not, yeah, not here. No way, shape or form would I have thought this was a pro-life book until you said something, honestly. Yeah. I did read the bisexual line and think like out of context this would suck but had no problem with it in context yeah like but that to me was worse like I literally would never would have thought about this as some sort of pro-life pro-motherhood argument if you hadn't said it yeah well I mean Bujol is so she has such a good turn of phrase she was even like I read this thing later and she she talks about this thing that happens in the final book. And someone was like, did you know all along? And she's like, well, I had an idea. She said, I put it in this place that I like to call Schrodinger's cat carrier. <laughs> like, maybe it could happen. I'm going to put it here where I keep all my really cool ideas. And we'll see what happens later. Yeah. Like, depending on how the rest of the book evolves, if that yeah. feels like an organic development. Like, so cool, right? Anyway, I, she's, I, like, love her so much. Like, so much. Anyway. All right. Sexiness. I mean, this book is not explicit. Also, Errol and Cordelia spend more than half of it apart. Spend a lot of time apart in this book. Um, They're on the run or on missions or. Or just him being occupied with the Regency. And then Mm -hmm. after they get nerve gassed and she has miles extracted, she can't have sex. Yeah. For a while, it's like even when they are together, they can't do anything about it. 
yeah. That said, there is this really cute, like really funny part of the book about how she she's so Lane was talking earlier about how there are there are times when you can talk about things and times when you can't. And uh, Cordelia the barrier in society and in, Cordelia is so struggling to figure out what the hell these rules even are because they seem to contradict each other. So she's actually written all these different rules like you, you, you don't know what any of the rules are. She never says what they are, which I mean, you you want to know what the rules are. On the other hand, it's like a horror movie where you want to see the monster and then you see it at the end. It's not that funny. So I think she makes a good decision in not telling you what the rules are. But there's a part where, you know, he's reading through her list and he's like, oh, would you like to violate rule 11 with me, dear captain? Uh, and she's like, yeah, and why not also rule three and four? And then I made him laugh in bed when at a strategic time I yelled out rule nine. Yes. <laughs> it's just it's just really funny. <laughs> it's it's very, very, very cute. Uh, and then I will say, and this is kind of a romance trope too, um, but she goes basically on the on the run, like they have to split up and like make it to a safe house, and they finally make it to the safe house. As soon as she gets there, he gets her checked out by a doctor to make sure she's okay so that they can do it. But this scene with the doctor is hilarious because so the fun. doctor is like, um, so you've recently had a baby, and she's like. I had a cesarean five months, like five weeks ago, rather than go into detail. And he goes, okay, so explain your symptoms. And she goes, fatigue. And he's like, I recommend exercise. And she's literally just run like 20 miles a day on the lamb with the emperor. Like she's a mess. And she's like, do you want to work out? She's like, do you want to leave right now? Because I'm going to punch you. Yeah. It's hilarious. So funny. So, so yeah, I mean, there's not like a lot of sexual tension. I mean, when they are together and they are happy, like at the ball or whatever, it's very sweet, but it's sweet. There's not a lot of it. No, it, this book is definitely not very like lusty. No, it's, it's not. It's really more about the negotiation of this relationship now that it has changed the initial terms. Yeah. So Overall, like, phenomenal book. Definitely recommend it, but definitely lower on the sexiness scale. Yeah. Even if it's high on, like, the big R romance scale. It's very high on the big R romance scale. It's just very high on the good novel scale. This book is, is really well written. It's just a really it's good book. It's so good. It's so good. So check it out when you get the chance. As always, thank you so much for listening. If you're enjoying the podcast, we'd love it if you could rate, review, and subscribe.